Hey, folks. Big news out of New York this week. Federal prosecutors charged the Brooklyn subway shooting suspect with carrying out a terrorist attack on a transportation system. And New York Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin resigned following an SDNY indictment on bribery and fraud charges for allegedly taking part in an illegal campaign fundraising scheme. In other news, a jury convicted another January 6th rioter on charges including obstruction of Congress. The jury rejected the defendant's efforts to blame his actions on Donald Trump and the big lie. Joyce Vance and I discuss all of this and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing a clip from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership for just $1 for one month. You can do that at cafe.com insider. That's cafe.com insider. We look forward to having you as a part of the Insider community. It's a great day, a good start to the week, a lot of interesting legal news to discuss. Indeed. Before we get to that, a couple of announcements. One, if you're in the New York area or plan to be in the New York area, we have another live program. I'll be interviewing at the Great Hall at Cooper Union next Tuesday, April 26th at 6.30 p.m. The mayor, the fairly recent mayor, new mayor of the city of New York, Eric Adams, and tickets, guess what Guess what the price is, Joyce? What's the price, Preet? Free. Wow. It's a public service. Free tickets, live taping of Stay Tuned with me and Mayor Eric Adams of the City of New York. You can get your tickets, reserve your spot at cafe.com slash events. And then one more thing, if we may ask your indulgence, Stay Tuned with Preet is nominated for a Webby, which is a fancy award for digital stuff, for Best Individual Episode category regarding the 2021 interview I did with Jerry Blackwell and Steve Slisher, the two lead prosecutors in the trial of Derek Chauvin, please vote for us. Go to cafe.com slash Webby, and the link will be in the show notes. So, Preet, close to home for you yet again, uh, your lieutenant governor, Brian Benjamin, uh, resigned last week. He resigned after the Southern District of New York, your old office, indicted him on bribery and fraud charges. He allegedly was part of an illegal quid pro quo sort of a scheme where he was putting public money in in people's reach in exchange for campaign contributions. Not, I think it's important to say, as the lieutenant governor, but prior to taking office as the lieutenant governor. These are the kind of charges that I think are familiar to both of us. And you've certainly indicted cases like this in the past. What do you think of this prosecution? So it's interesting in a couple of respects. And as you point out, the conduct at the heart of the indictment relates to the time that Brian Benjamin was a state senator in New York and also during a a time when he ran for controller. Now, generally speaking, quid pro quo honest services fraud cases that we brought against sitting politicians when I was in office, and I think this is true around the country, tended to be of the following type. Politician receives or asks for a bribe in exchange for official action of some sort, voting a particular way in a bill, or making authorization of money that would be in the interest of the person paying the bribe. But the bribe would be pocketed and go directly into the wallet or the bank account of the politician, right? So the quid pro quo, the quid was something that was personally helpful to the person who was being bribed. Sometimes it was envelopes of cash, Sometimes it was by way of, of fees or other things that could be hidden. We brought a lot of cases like that. There can also be a quid pro quo criminal case if you do official action 
directly in exchange for a contribution. But I think the standard is higher and more difficult to prove because it's very hard to explain how a politician put $50,000 in his pocket, in his personal bank account from somebody who had some interest before that political body, right? Like, you know, why, why are they paying you money when you didn't do any work for them? You just did your job. You voted a particular way on a bill. It's very different when you're talking about a political contribution because campaign donations, generally speaking, and there's a twist here, but campaign donations are lawful. It's our political system. People give money and, you know, they hope and expect, this is the dirty thing about politics, as people might mention from time to time, you hope and expect that that politician's going to vote your way, or maybe you give them money in a legal campaign contribution because they have supported your interests. And generally speaking, there's nothing wrong with that. That's just politics as usual. It's driven by money. It's driven by political contributions that have to follow some set of, of rules. So here it's going to be a little bit more difficult than the garden variety case because the defense, and by the way, the defense lawyer here is Barry Burke, who you may remember from impeachment. He's a very good lawyer. And he's going to argue, I don't know how valid the arguments will be, this is just politics. You know, there were some contributions made and they were not connected directly to the official actions that were taken. So the government's going to have to prove, I think, a little bit more directly the quid pro quo, less left to inference and more requiring direct connection of the two things. You know, because we have this system that you've sort of laid out where there's bribes that are illegal and quasi-bribes that are perfectly legal, contributions, the question is always line drawing. And where do you draw the line? And the Supreme Court's trajectory in this entire area, whether it's bribery or honest services fraud or any other sort of political misconduct, has been to make it more difficult for prosecutors to prosecute public officials. I think where it sort of ends up, you know, I, I can remember a time Probably I'll just peg it to the Bush administration, where in my office we would do honest services fraud cases, cases where you had politicians who owed a duty of honest and fair services to the people who elected them and who would do something else. Maybe they would, you know, take a side job in the two-year college system in Alabama and get big payments of money never showing up to do any work for the two-year college system and then kicking back benefits to folks there. That's sort of a classic, I think, example of the kind of case that holds up. But there are sketchier cases. And where the Supreme Court ends up is with Virginia's Governor McDonnell, where they say, you know, just arranging meetings for people or even promoting their products, that's not enough. Um, you need a more classic quid pro quo in order to prosecute. And that, I think you're correct, Pre, is the issue in this case. Is there enough of a direct connection between what's given and what's sought in this case for there to be a conviction? So here's what else is interesting. There's someone in the indictment referred to as CC1. And that, for prosecutors, we all know, that means co-conspirator one. Co-conspirator one is not identified by name. That's standard practice in the Southern District and elsewhere, even if the person is readily identifiable from surrounding information. And so the press has identified CC1 as a business person named Gerald Migdol. The government will never confirm whether that identification is correct or not, but it doesn't sound like they've waved the press off of that. And that was my practice as well. I don't know if it was yours. It's possible they have it wrong, but it's quite doubtful they have it wrong because I think multiple outlets have reported that CC1 is Mr. Migdol. Now, Mr. Migdol, if that's in fact CC1, was himself arrested back in November on charges of wire fraud, aggravated identity theft, and other crimes. 
And what's interesting to me is usually in that circumstance, you get a person who's arrested, that person flips, and then that person provides evidence against someone higher up in the food chain, hypothetically, the lieutenant governor of the state of New York, and then you, you build your case. Ordinarily, if that person has pled guilty and has flipped, they would be referred to as a cooperating witness and they would be CW1, not CC1. Does that mean anything to you? Yeah, I mean, it really does. It's an interesting sort of a situation here. I, I don't know. Could that just I thought maybe I was overreading that to tell you the truth. And maybe it was just the way that you guys use that in your office. But do you read more into it? It doesn't necessarily mean anything. There, there might be reasons why they don't want to identify at this moment. The person is someone who has pled guilty and is a cooperating witness. You know, often you would have that in a case where you're worried about violence. This is a white collar, you know, fraud case. So I wouldn't think you'd worry about that. So maybe it means nothing. Or maybe it means that there's some problems with him as a witness. Mm -hmm. And he's not going to be a testimonial witness at trial against the lieutenant governor. But I just, you know, that's not something I heard people talk about or mention. But it struck me. The information that they have in the indictment is very specific. And although it could certainly come from places other than Migdal, perhaps there were people around him or even in Benjamin's office who were aware of these details, it looks, if you read the indictment, like he should be the one who's giving up this information. But there could well be either a testimonial problem or, or maybe he's Paul Manafort, right? Maybe he got into it partway and backed out. One other thing that I would note, and I wonder what you think of this and if you think it's a wrinkle or a complication for the government in this case. I don't think it is, but it's just interesting. The allegation is that Brian Benjamin, the elected official, provided a $50,000 authorization of money to a charity of CC1. And in exchange for that, he pressured CC1 to bring him a number of small donations in part so he would have campaign funds, but in part also because of the matching program uh, in the election he was running in. and and you get a lot of government money if you get real money from people. And it's also made clear that CC1 committed an independent crime by engaging straw donors. So pretending that money was coming from other people, including members of his family, but they were actually coming from him. And that's illegal and you're not allowed to do it. So embedded in all this is a straw donor scheme that's itself unlawful. But there's no allegation that the lieutenant governor was aware that there was a straw donor scheme. The allegation is that there was the quid pro quo in exchange for donations. He engaged in official action. Do you think there's, a, there's any issue or problem or is it of interest to you that there's no allegation that the central defendant here knew about the straw donor scheme? You know, it is sort of interesting. I mean, it could just be that they don't have enough evidence or that there was a strategic reason not to indict it. But... Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership for just $1 for one month. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work. Mm -hmm.